All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you uh, on from New York City here on the last day of February 2017, February 28th. I'd like to remind you each and every week that I am also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Or you can call our office here in New York City during normal work hours at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426 would also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's newsletter. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Chen has had an amazing track record, and he continues to focus on energy, biotech, and the mining sector. And uh, he is very well known among hedge fund managers for his expertise, especially in the energy and biotech sectors. But he's also done some very good things in the mining sector as well. So you're interested in signing up, go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com to sign up for his letter. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. And uh, I would like to invite you uh, to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com, questions the number for Taylor at gmail.com, and the best website to go to to follow all I do is J Taylor Media, J A Y Taylor Media.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show uh, are Dynasert Inc., Golden Predator, Chilean Metals, our Vista Gold Corp., Novo Resources, Uranium Energy Corp., and RN Resources. For sure, one of the most exciting sponsors and a company in my newsletter is Arvista Gold Corp. And just this morning, the company announced that it has increased its inferred gold resource from 3 million ounces to 4.4 million ounces. What is especially exciting about this announcement is that this increase has been recorded even before the company begins a major drill program this summer. And also, keep in mind that this is an open pit project that is open uh, in all directions, and the resource measures over a distance of 7,000 meters at this stage. I expect it's going to get a lot larger, uh, and down to a depth of 250 meters. So I pre-taped an interview with Jean Lefleur, he's the president and CEO of Arvista, uh, last week, and it will be played right after our first commercial break today. Uh, Jean Jean will tell you that uh, the company's goal is to outline in excess of 5 million ounces of gold that can be mined by way of open pit. Uh, and, you know, what is, it is, this is really the last major underdeveloped or undeveloped 
open pit mega deposit in Quebec, at least the last one that is known. The announcement this morning tells me that this company is not very far from Jean's goal of 5 million ounces. And the idea is to get the project up to a size that will attract a major gold mining company. My belief is, given 4.4 million ounces at this point in time, with a major drill program taking place this summer, we're likely to see something significantly over 5 million ounces, of course. Whether they're all mineable is another issue. It takes time to do all the all the uh, geological work and, and so forth. But it is an extremely exciting project, and indeed some very significant financiers are getting behind this story now. It is one of my larger personal holdings, and Aura Vista is, in my view, certainly one of the most compelling stories out there among the junior mining sector. So you'll you'll want to hear what Jean Lafleur has to say after our first commercial break. Now, usually we have Michael Oliver with us almost every week because Michael uh, is is so important to me. He's been so helpful to me in terms of uh, his technical analysis. And I would suggest you go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work. But let me just pass along a couple of the things that uh, Michael is focused on right now. Uh, we don't have him on today because the time it required uh, to interview Jean Lafleur was just uh, too excessive to have Michael on. But just to give you a brief view of what Michael is looking at these days, based on his most recent comments on gold, he sees 1190 as support, although he says he doesn't see any particular reason to believe that 1190 will be tested. And uh, he sees resistance on the upside at somewhere around 1289 to 1290. He thinks if we can get uh, to 1309, uh, but then he thinks that we're going to be off uh, sometime upwards to 1377. If we can get to that level, uh, he thinks we're going to break out to uh, new highs. 1377 was the high for 2016. With respect to gold shares, he put out a little missive this morning suggesting uh, that he's not at all surprised by the pullback in the shares relative to the bullion price. And he expects that uh, it will hold above the 65-day average which is increasing about three cents a day. And he notes that uh, that average today is $22.38. And a look at GDX uh, a little earlier, right before we came on the show, it was at $22.80. Michael's also uh, bearish, um, is looking for a bearish outcome on the dollar and a bullish outcome on the euro. That should certainly be gold-friendly as well. But what Michael is really focused on these days, it seems, the S&P 500 and uh, he talked to us last week about comparing it with the Chrysler building in New York, the outline of the chart of the S&P. And uh, just to quote Michael, he said, and I quote, I do not trust the unsustainability of the upside in the U.S. market whatsoever. Neither do I see momentum structural violations on the downside signaling a bearish posture yet. I will soon signal that likely downside in two phases. The first will be an intermediate momentum downturn and then a level that signals a long-term momentum downside. As we explained, the distance between those two minefields is only about 5 or 6%, end of quote. Well, we'll have, hope to have Michael on next week, but uh, let's turn to today's show. I've titled it Foreign and Economic Policy Under President Trump. And two of Ron Paul's trusted staff members when he was congressman, namely Jeff Deist, who was his chief of staff, and Daniel McAdams, who was Dr. Paul's foreign affairs advisor, will be with me to discuss their hopes, concerns, and fears related to the Trump presidency. Well, Jeff is now the president of the Mises Institute, and Daniel now works daily with Ron Paul on his show uh, that you can tune into as well. 
Now, I'm really anxious to hear what both these gentlemen have to say about President Trump uh, as we are just about, well, just one month into his presidency, and we're, of course, anticipating a very important address to Congress tonight. So we'll have Jeff and Daniel with me in about a half an hour, but now we do have to take our first commercial break, but don't go away because if you are at all interested or an investor in gold mining shares, I think you're not going to want to miss what Jean Lafleur has to say about our Vista, which now has 4.4 million ounces of gold. And as I say, I believe it's going to get much larger than that, given the aggressive drill program the company has this summer. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Jean Lafleur. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon. Focused on advancing its Three Aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean Metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time Jean Lefleur. He's the president and CEO of Arvista Gold Corporation. Jean is a professional geologist. He's had uh, lots of experience over 30 years. He's worked with many major mining companies in the past, uh, companies like uh, Newmont, Falcon Bridge, Placer Dome. Uh, he has, uh, of course, he is a geologist, and he's, uh, he's worked with uh, a company called McWaters Mining back in, in Quebec in 1998 to 2003. Uh, but he's been involved in some 
significant gold discoveries up there in and around the Valdor Malartic uh, camps, including uh, his involvement in developing the bulk gold exploration program at the Canadian Malartic Gold Property, which uh, eventually became Osisco. Uh, Cisco's 10 million ounce uh, Canadian Malarctic deposit and indeed uh, Jean thinks that there's an awful lot in common with the project that his company Arvista Gold is looking at geologically in common with that very big deposit so uh, thanks for joining me today Jean it's, it's good to have you with me thanks Jace uh, much appreciated Really good. Uh, it is an exciting story. It's a company that I've invested some of my own retirement money in. I'm really uh, very excited about what you've got going up there. I should mention to our listeners that you trade in Canada under the symbol AVA, and you can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol ARVSF. Uh, there's about 132 million shares outstanding, recently trading uh, at around $0.27. Cents. Um, I believe that's in, in U.S. money. Uh, and uh, giving it a market cap of around $36 million. Um, so you have, a, I think, uh, what you have on the books at this point in time is a gold resource uh, measured and inferred resource of around 200,000 ounces and 2.8 million ounces in the inferred, uh, or I should say a measured and indicated of 200,000 ounces and a, uh, an inferred category, you have about 2.8 million ounces. Do I have that right, Gian? Yes, that's right, uh, Jay. Um, and uh, most of it is uh, um, was a lot of the work was done pre twenty eleven um, when we acquired the property, and we focused on getting the deposit from you know around half a million ounce to close to the three million ounce globally. Um, so that our work from two thousand twelve to two thousand fourteen. Well, three million ounces is, certainly seems to be a good start. Um, your project is located north in northwestern Quebec, and as I look at the map, you know I realize it's very close to a number of other projects and mines that I've been familiar with that I've had in my newsletter in the past. Can you talk a little bit about your project, um, where it is located, and what um, what sort of geological uh, endowment you have there? I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's an area that is. A very has had you know huge amounts of, of gold discovered so far, and apparently a lot more are yet to come. But can you talk a little bit about the geological setting that endows this area so much, so richly in gold? Sure, Jay. No, look, we're right in the middle of the Abitibi Belt um, on the Quebec side. But if you go west of us, uh, obviously Timmins, Kirkland Lake, um, you know, probably in the area of 150 million ounces uh, produced out of those two camps. Then you have the more recent discoveries or rediscoveries, the, the Detour Gold uh, story with their 15 million ounce. And if you go, you know, 100, a bit over 100 kilometers to the south, you get into the Valdor Malartic camp where um, Osisco had discovered and again rediscovered the Camelartic uh, deposit, and that was subsequently bought out. Um, Integra is doing a lot of work around the Valdor camp, so uh, we're right in the middle. We're about 60 kilometers, 35 to 40 miles southeast or southwest of Metogamy, which is Glencore, the base metal camp, and we're just north of. Uh, there's an old smaller producer. Uh, the old sleeping giant operation uh, that was recently bought out by a local junior, um, and they're producing a small amount of gold there. So you know the camp itself, the entire belt, you know, was close to 200 million ounces of gold produced since the early 1900s. So you know it's obvious that there's still a lot of gold left 
And our project, um, you know, we spent quite a bit of time last year uh, after the first financing, the first million that we financed, uh, we financed in total 7.5 million Canadian. Um, but we decided to go back and relog a lot of the core, which had never been done uh, over the 40-year history of the project. Um, there, there's, there's a substantial amount of, of work that we needed to be done to basically remodel this uh, deposit in a in a bulk gold style uh, approach. And uh, so we spent the bulk of last year doing that. Um, and so we've come up with a very simplified geology. So matrix rocks at the bottom, more felsic rocks at the top, and in between you have these iron-rich units, almost like iron formations with porphyries and lots of faulting, lots of alteration, some sulfide development. So all the criteria you need so that if you have a bit of gold in the system, this unit uh, in between unit, I call it this transitional unit, is much like a sponge that so will pick up a lot of the gold, and that's where the bulk of the three million ounces uh, that we have on the property lower quality for now, but uh, in terms of the bulk type potential, it's significant on the property. I mean, the system itself is almost 20 square uh, miles, um, and that's huge, right? So um, it's one of the biggest ones in the Abitibi, um, and it still needs quite a bit of work. There's never been mining here. Um, so our, our big focus right now is to get this up towards the 5 million ounces um, with uh, drilling. So it's, uh, look, there's good potential, uh, great geology, uh, there's jurisprudence with the other camps, so we're well on our way. You've had some 200,000 meters of historical drilling there. How much of that drilling do you reckon has been factored into your current uh, resource of nearly 3 million ounces in, in, both, in all categories? It's probably about half of the drilling right now, and it equates to close to uh, 98,000 samples um, that fit in. So the issue we had was that a lot of the older drilling, say pre-2000 drilling, um, was focused on looking for quartz veins, load gold type deposits. And since that time, um, the previous vendor had made a nice little discovery, you know, 180 meters of one gram, but it kind of left it aside in, in the early 2000s. And it was just about the same time that Camel Arctic was coming on stream. Mm-hmm. So people hadn't really looked at you know, the bulk gold type potential. And one of the key elements of the Dewey project has never been mined. So we definitely have high-grade zones. We've got nine of them, um, anywhere between, say, 2 grams and 20 grams. Um, 200,000 ounces is kind of the median uh, for these higher-grade deposits. So uh, that's significant. But the low-grade envelopes in the porphyries are definitely a, a game-changer here. So what you're saying, if I hear what you're saying, uh, other projects in that area, for example, the Malartic that uh, Osisco developed, uh, had some high-grade mining taken from it, and what you're saying is there's there's never been any of the sort of higher-grade load targets taken out there as, as there has been in some of the other projects. Is that right? And so does that mean the potential possibly to have, you know, somewhat higher-grade overall? Yes, exactly, Jay. I mean, that's, that's, that's the model. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have nine of them, so, and this is between surface and, say, 300 meters, no more. And uh, so, you know, the idea of remodeling this in three dimension uh, will probably give us a hint as to where we should go for more of these high-grade zones. Uh, the, the, 
as you go in the extensions at depth. Um, and the fact that, you know, the much of the resources within the top 300 meters, mm-hmm. you know, it, it bodes well. I mean, we still have, you know, maybe another 300 or 400 meters uh, depth uh, to look at the ball goal potential. So, look, it, it, it's there. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's over, a, a, say, a seven-kilometer long trend, a couple of kilometers wide. Um, so seven kilometers is about five miles by a mile and a half uh, wide. So it's quite significant uh, in terms of the size. And, look, it, there's a lot of empty space, a lot of room to find more of these high-grade zones. And, obviously, the low-grade is... Uh, you know, there's still quite a bit to, to test there, too. So immediately you're looking at an area with a strike length of about 7 kilometers. Is that what I heard you say? Yes, yes. And, and that is what you're really working on now and what you'll be looking to try to build up that 5 million ounce uh, resource that you were talking about? That's right. I mean, that's all the focus now. And, you know, we announced, uh, you know, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, that we're starting that 30,000 meter drill program. Mm-hmm. And that's a result of the financing. The last financing we did at uh, 15 cents, so we raised uh, six million Canadian. Um, so the money is being spent there to drill. So any indication of the five million ounces, that's what we want to pick up. I mean, that's the that's the near-term objective. And as you go a little further down the line, um, you know, keep building the resources, keep producing uh, resource reports, and uh, you know, if we get to that threshold, uh, then maybe we'll see what the next. You uh, talked to me about an 18-month and a 36-month plan. Uh, Is that 18-month, does that include last year, six months, and and this year, 2017, or what 18 months are we talking about there? And and your 30,000-meter drill program, is that that part of that 18-month program? That's right, Jay. Uh, 18 months. The countdown started in December 2016. Uh-huh. So the idea is to is to you know sufficiently uh, drill uh, to get up into the inferred category and probably transfer a good portion of the resources into much higher categories. The measure mm-hmm. indicated so that we get closer to our magic number and say the next. Uh, 36 months is basically, uh, you know, is to take those resources, bring them towards reserve, and definitely initiate feasibility on the first 5 million ounces, but at the same time keep exploring, right? So uh, yeah. who knows the ultimate number here? It could be much larger. Uh, time will tell. Well, you mentioned that I think you, I heard you say that about half of the 200,000 meters have been factored in to the current resource. So you're modeling this thing into a three-dimensional uh, a model, and you're twinning a lot of those holes, I guess, that you were drilled before that were not modeled into, that were not built into the model. So it seems to me that you might be able to come up with significantly higher numbers once those that full 200,000 meters have been factored into the model? That's right. Look, we're doing, we did close to 7,000 new samples from that, but obviously, um, you know, we need to do more. I mean, we did the first 7,000 just to look at the most obvious mineralization that was never sampled. Mm-hmm. And we're getting results out of that. So they will be all incorporated eventually into the next round of resource estimation once we get the 30,000 meters done. So, and again, you know, we may go back and say, well, look, there's 100,000 meters left. Let's continue with sampling. I mean, you know, the value of this core is immense. You know, in today's terms, it's more than uh, $30 million, right? So yeah. that, you know, might as well use it to its fullest if they've only sampled 
you know, 25, 30% of the core, well, what's to say there's not more mineralization left, especially the type of mineralization we're looking for is, is disseminated gold, not vein type. So mm-hmm. that, to me, is, uh, again, it's a good positive uh, type deposit that, um, you know, who knows what the final number is. John, I think you've indicated that you expect to do a, an updated PEA this year. Is that still in the cards? Yes, it's still in the cards, and um, you know it all depends on the next resource number and where we where we're going with this. Uh, we we had hired uh, at the end of Q, uh, at the end of Q two last year, Keith Menti as our COO. Uh, Keith, uh, I've worked with him many years back, but uh, he's a senior engineer, mining engineer, and he's uh, brought a number of projects towards production. Definitely past feasibility. So with Keith's involvement, we're running uh, parallel engineering, metallurgy. Uh, we're looking at, you know, the possibilities of the super pit type model. And I think that, you know, very, uh, it's a great approach. I mean, one should always do your exploration, especially more advanced exploration with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whatever the back of the envelope PEA style type studies will orient our exploration. Um, you know, where are the ounces, right? So, can, if we focus on a concentrated area and we get all our ounces there, well, could these ounces be economic? So, we, we're doing a lot of internal studies to to, to do that. And uh, look, I'm sure that at some point we will come updated with a new PEA, which might lead to something else, right? So, sure. one thing at a time. Right now, let's get, let's see that five million ounces. Right? Sure. So. So your, uh, your, your 18-month program, well, I guess, would take you through the middle of 2018 then, more or less. Yes, exactly. And then uh, at that point, what will you do? Because you've also talked to me about a 36. Well, even probably quicker than that, right? So if we um, do the drilling and the indications are good, uh, we'll certainly look at, at more financing. I mean, our stock price is still doing well. Um, it peaked in Canadian dollars, uh, $0.38.9 cents, uh, uh, last week. So now it's a bit down, but the markets are down too. But to me, it's much higher than $0.15 cents we financed last. So maybe we'll do a bit more financing. But the key is to just keep increasing uh, the amount of drilling, uh, get confidence on that. So maybe within a shorter time, we'll be able to you know initiate TEA um, and then just continue improving on the quality of the ounces. Mm-hmm. Um, if we find one or two more high-grade zones, more low-grade, then we'll update, obviously, the mineral resource. And uh, who knows? You may maybe accelerate towards feasibility if the numbers look right. Mm-hmm. So, But the idea is, is the 36 months is basically to, to complete feasibility on at least 5 million ounces. And I'm very confident that we'll be able to do that. Lee, you mentioned a 6 million raise. That will take you through this year or not? You need yes, to raise uh, a little more, possibly. Yes, we will. And uh, like I say, we'll do it uh, with the current financiers that we have in place. Uh, all of the funds from last year's financing has been basically placed with very strategic investors. It's not, you know, public at large. Uh, there was a, s- a small amount of flow through Canadian, but it was one client uh, through a PI Financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, primary capital is involved here. We're talking Power One also. And they, you know, basically are there for the longer haul. Sure. And uh, so if we need more money, we can... Uh, basically go go through them and uh, you know it's more on the retail side at this point and if ever it becomes more institutional it'll come much later right? mm-hmm. as we go towards feasibility um, and, and beyond that but for now we're doing quite well with uh, the retail individuals we have. John could you talk a little bit about your management team and 
how far you can take this project on your own, uh, or is it your, really your desire to get this to a point where a major says, I've got to have that, or ideally to have several majors saying, I've got to have that deposit? That's right. I mean, right now, if you look at our stock price, you look at the $3 million ounces, we're probably valued in the you know, $10 to $12 range um, uh, in Canadian dollars terms, mm-hmm. and the per ounce in the ground, which, which is okay. I feel that this is great. So as we improve the quality of the ounces and go towards the $5 million, um, that number will come up. And we know for a fact that, that uh, you know, feasibility ounces in the Abitibi where we have big mills could be valued between two and $300 an ounce mm-hmm. uh, U.S., basically, and that's significant. So if you have 5 million ounces, well, you look at the valuation of that. At the same time, you know, the team now, from an exploration perspective, we're okay, right? So we have hired the people to, to take us towards that 5 million ounces. And also from the engineering side, mm-hmm. with Keith Minty under his guidance, if we need to bring it to feasibility, if it's going that way, he could do it, right? So we can go all the way with this. It's, it's, it's not a problem. The key is to get that 5 million ounces. And sure, it's obvious that you know people are looking at us. Uh, it's the it's the remaining, the last remaining uh, bulk oil project um, of significant size in the Abitibi. I mean, there are some in other belts, but for the Abitibi, it's the last one. So. Right. You know, it's obvious that, you know, people will look at this and, you know, we'll just see with time how, uh, you know, how the market reacts to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in summary, what should investors be looking at then as, as this year unfolds? I guess just keep their eye on the drill results and uh, towards the end of the year, a PEA, I suppose. Yes, I mean, obviously, lots of news to come out, so on result. Um, and, you know, you may get spectacular results, but probably standard results because mm-hmm. uh, you look at the results we actually had a press release this morning. Uh, people said, oh, you know, you don't have 100 meters of uh, 8 grams or something, but that's that's not what we're looking for right now. I mean, we're looking for continuity of zones between the high-grade pods. Mm-hmm. Sure. The high-grade pods will take care of grades, so we'll find more of these. And then the low-grades connect them so that you can have a, an all-encompassing um, resource model of, you know, somewhere between 0.7 and 1.5 grams, right? So yeah. Those are the possibilities, and the more you add, the better. So look at the news releases, the updated resource, some of the metallurgy, some of the drill results coming a bit later, and uh, look, it's, it'll all come together uh, at some point, and, uh, you know, take a look at a stock price. Uh, and, you know, it's, um, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, and uh, there's definitely some interest, uh, as we can see with the volumes. Uh, last week, uh, we are one of the best trading uh, companies on the TSXV uh, in terms of volume, so there will be weeks where you get a lot of people coming in, and there'll be other weeks will be quieter, but uh, it's it's longer term. That's what we're looking for. Thank you very much for being with us today, and I look forward to updating your story sometime in the future. Excellent. Thanks very much, Jay. It was, uh, it was great to, to talk to you. Thank you very much, Sean. Well, folks, don't go away. Coming up next, we're going to have uh, Ron Paul's top staff members with me uh, for the presidency back in 2012, and we're going to ask them what their view is on the uh, Trump presidency and how that might be projecting after one month of, uh, of his presidency. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams.
Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Spec Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Arvista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Arvista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Arvista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol ARVSF. For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Jeff Deist, who served uh, Congressman Ron Paul as his chief of staff, and Daniel, and Daniel McAdams, who served uh, Dr. Paul as his foreign affairs dev- advisor while Dr. Paul was still a, a congressman. Um, and so it's uh, both men were there with Congressman Paul when he ran for president, and I guess that was back in 2012 or so. Jeff is currently the president of the Mises Institute, and Daniel works directly every day with Dr. Paul at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. And you can check out Jeff's work and the work of the Mises Institute at Mises.org, and uh, you can follow uh, you can follow the work of Dr. Paul and uh, as well as Daniel at the uh, Ron Paul Institute, RonPaulInstitute.org. Uh, so welcome, both of you, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for joining me again. 
Um, I would like to ask uh, both of you, uh, perhaps, just just um, put in a little plug for your respective institutions, starting with you, Jeff. Talk about the Mises Institute and what you're trying to do, and then, Daniel, follow up with the Ron Paul Institute. Take a couple of minutes, uh, both of you, to, to just to tell our listeners what you're doing and what the purpose of your institutions uh, is. Jay, I... You know, it seems like we live in such an anti-intellectual age, and the the truth is that ideas still matter, or the lack of ideas still matter. And the Mises Institute has always been about trying to provide an education in economics, what we would consider real or correct or proper economics, mostly of the Austrian variety, uh, to people at little or no cost, and to really doing an end run around academia and the academic establishment, uh, trying to make uh, a thorough grounding in, in econ available to people. Uh, of all stripes, of all walks of life, because it's so important. It informs everything about us. And, and, and as you know, econ has become this mathy discipline when, in fact, it's, it's a, a subset of all human actions. So the Mises Institute is really here uh, to educate and hopefully even inspire the layperson to uh, stop believing the nonsense uh, that we get from the mainstream. All right, Daniel. Uh, Ron Paul Institute, what are you up to? Well, we've... <clears throat> Excuse me, we've been around for, uh, you know, I guess uh, going on almost four years now. And, you know, our, our, our mission is to continue Dr. Paul's work in the area primarily of foreign affairs, foreign policy, and civil liberties. But obviously there's a, there's, there's a lot of overlap with, with what Mises does with economics, with Austrian economics, with central banking, with the Fed. Uh, so you can't really sequester too much. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we certainly we find in the era of Trump now that there's much more to do. There There's much more... Uh, room for for commentary. This sclerosis of the Obama administration is gone, and we find that our influence is increasing. And we, you know, we we run a highly curated website with new articles daily, and we we write a lot of our own articles. And Dr. Paul and I do a daily Ron Paul Liberty Report, which is live at YouTube uh, every weekday at noon Eastern time. Uh, mm-hmm. And our audience is growing there. We have we've had about six million people watch our show, which is great. We're getting close to 80,000 subscribers, so uh, you know, our job is to is talk to the informed layman uh, and, and tell them that there is an alternative to fake news. <laughs> no, well, I think you have been labeled fake news, Daniel. We have, and it's a label we, we wear proudly. Yeah, David Stockman <laughs> said the same, and I've had him on the show. He was named as a faker as well. Has uh, Mises uh, earned that reputation yet, Jeff, or are you still working on it? Or you don't well, want to have it. <laughs> no, I, I think we're still working on it. But the, 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 what's interesting here is this idea that any news is not filtered or aimed at uh, persuading as opposed to just reporting. It's sure. it's, a, it's a loaded term. But I, I'm glad the term has, has come to life because we don't have to all sit here and pretend that Walter Cronkite is the voice of God anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, good point. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about this Trump administration. Jeff, uh, I would like to ask you first. We have heard a lot of scorn from the mainstream media concerning Steve Bannon, uh, who some are crediting as the brains behind Donald Trump. To what extent do you think that's true? And then maybe have some of your thoughts on, on Steve Bannon. Well, not being an insider, I can't tell you how much he has Trump's ear. Um, I was listening to Victor Davis Hanson, who's sort of a right-wing guy with the Hoover Institution, writes a little bit for National Review the other night, and 
uh, I view Hansen as a very intelligent man, and, and he opined from his own knowledge that Bannon is a very, very bright guy. So I'm not going to doubt that or dispute that. Um, I did watch his movie. When he left Goldman Sachs, he went out to California and, and produced a, made a, a private equity company that produced some right-wing movies. One of them was called Generation Zero, which mm. is available for free on YouTube, and it really gives a, an excellent portrayal of Bannon's that admittedly dark worldview. It's based on a concept in a book called The Fourth Turning. Uh, and, and look, I don't care if anybody has uh, a dark worldview with respect to government and what government can do, but, but my problem with Bannon is that I don't think he understands the central issue of our day, which is the same one as always, uh, progressivism versus real liberalism. Uh, uh. It was pro- progressive statism, the, the idea that government can perfect man control man versus liberalism, which is the, the notion that man should be left free to, to his own devices with some sort of uh, common law restraints. And, and there's no sense or feeling of that basic power versus liberty struggle in his movie. Instead, it's this kind of darkish um, uh, m- film about nationalism versus the left. And, and while I certainly share his uh, disregard for the left, which has become an absolute force of evil uh, in the West. Uh, I, I found the movie less than compelling. I found it dull. I found it facile. Um, so he, he may indeed be brilliant, but from my perspective anyway, the, the film Generation Zero didn't really reflect that. Yeah. Any comments, Daniel? Yeah, I, On I, Steve Bannon? I had, the same reaction. I had the same reaction as Jeff. You know, it was recommended to me as a movie that had libertarian principles uh, throughout it. Uh, but everyone mm-hmm. that was interviewed was a neocon. And, ah. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, when I see John Bolton up there talking about uh, foreign policy, I'm going to turn it off. And I think that's, that's what's missing in the Bannon worldview is, is the idea of what America's place in the world is and the idea of restraint. And he doesn't have it. He has a messianic view from what I can tell. Uh, from the movie that's not dissimilar from the neocon, so I, I found it quite boring too. I, 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 you know, nearly, nearly fell asleep. And I think, and, and I think Lou Rockwell or the Mises Institute, I think it was Lou Rockwell, put up a great quote from, uh, uh, from Murray Rothbard on this whole idea of these predetermined uh, 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 chunks of history. You know, that this follows this and that follows that. And I encourage people to look up what what, what they put up because I, I really reject this idea that. That history is predetermined. It's it's uh, it's something that I find an asthma. Yeah, as if we don't have any free choice. Huh? As if countries can't uh, take a different direction. Um, well, yeah. I guess that's, that's that's something we're never going to really. Well, it, it certainly seems to me that if he's surrounding himself with neocons, and and I and I agree that some of the people that you just named uh, that are now seemingly very much a part of the administration, uh, you know, are certainly problematic from a libertarian's point of view. I would think. Uh, but Bannon's speech the other day at CPAC, he talked about, or his little discussion there, uh, he, he talked about three basic uh, ideas of the Trump administration and the Trump Trumpism, uh, I guess, that he espoused a lot during the campaign. The three were national security, economic nationalism, and deconstruction of the administrative state. Uh, I would like to ask you, Jeff, to the extent you understand what he's talking about there, do, are, are there any of those ideas? I mean, certainly, uh, deconstruction of the administration state, I would think, would be one that libertarians could be pleased with. But would you comment just in general with with respect to his his three 
basic ideals of, of the Trump administration. Well, national security is a bit of a canard as an expression. It's kind of like social justice, undefined and undefinable. And of course, we know that real national security comes from not stirring up hornet's nets abroad uh, and demilitarizing and depoliticizing conflict all around the globe. And and if Hans-Hermann Hoppe is to believe, national security is basically a myth that uh, vast militaries and armies and uh, defense apparatus provide no real benefit at all. Uh, you know, economic nationalism, I think we'll get into that, uh, or I hope we get into that during this discussion, but, uh, y- you know, it's a, another uh, b- bit of a r- red herring. Um, it's something where a true America first trade policy is very simple. Uh, mm-hmm. You make it easier for poor people in America to buy cheap imported stuff at Walmart. I yeah. mean, let's let's be frank. That relatively free or or freer trade than existed in the past has been one of the huge uh, factors in making less affluent people in America better off over the last thirty, forty years. Uh, so, um, you know, slapping a tax on people to buy something from another country is 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 never the solution. Now, the administrative state—that's a discussion we could have for hours and hours, and and that's uh, obviously. Uh, something that needs to be done. It, it's obviously an enormous problem in America, but uh, it, it's so entrenched. The administrative uh, bureaucracies uh, don't come and go for the most part with presidents. It's only the, the leadership at the very top, the secretaries and agency appointees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult task. And when we talk about the deep state and we talk about interests, especially interests that contract with the federal government on one, on one level, um, you, you want to talk about a group of self-interested people who do not want to see the administrative state deconstructed. Um, boy, I, I, uh, I wouldn't want to be the president who has to back up that promise. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a promise he's made. So it's, it's going to be quite interesting uh, to see how that works. I remember, Jeff, one time you talking about each of these major branches of government, these, these uh, not branches of government, but bureaucracies, are enormous entities in their own right, and to try to stop them is almost impossible, right? Well, it, you know, there's there are federal employee unions, which are very powerful, so there's legal mechanisms and potentially judicial roadblocks to anything Trump would want to do. Uh, and there's still, we don't hear much about it, but there still is this little thing called Congress, which in, in theory is supposed to be passing laws. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where, Trump has made promises almost in the form of boasts, mm-hmm. almost like a businessman saying, my new golf course resort is going to be the greatest thing you ever saw. And it, it's a, it's, you know, he's comes from a world where he really ruled and controlled yes. uh, uh, his employees. And he's going to find this Washington, a, a world very hostile to, to himself. Yeah. I mean, he, he can uh, issue executive orders to an extent, I guess. But how is that going to go down, and how is it going to work? It's, uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch, I guess, from, to the extent we're able to see it. Um, all right, let's, so let's uh, – <coughs> uh, Daniel, with respect to national security, uh, you know, some of the ideas here is the setting up the wall and immigration, trying to keep people out. Um, of course, in the meantime, what's Trump's policy looking like overseas with respect to the military. He talked a lot during the campaign about we shouldn't be involved in all these different places. And I said, yeah, that's that's something I agree with. And I was pretty happy about that. 
But as you were pointing out, he seems to be bringing in a lot of neocons that certainly don't want to back away from a, from a, an aggressive military interference overseas. So is it possible to have, you know, to set up walls to keep immigrants out uh, and, and have a, a safe domestic uh, environment uh, if we're still stirring up the hornet's nest overseas, Daniel? Yep. Excuse me, I'm sorry. In, in some ways, I, I can't completely fault him for surrounding himself by neocons because, unfortunately, even if he wanted to reach out to a different cadre of foreign affairs experts, where are they? Um, you know, who would he reach to? Uh, the big names that you're supposed to have in your administration have all made their careers by advising uh, that we do more overseas. Uh, the more that you do, the more that you advise overseas, the more that your think tank uh, gets donated to from, uh, you know, companies associated with the military-industrial complex. It's sort of an evil relationship they have inside the Beltway. So even if he really wanted to, if they find me some people that are outside this, it would be very difficult. People go into foreign affairs because they want more of it, uh, just like they do in other fields. They go into education because they want more of it. So that's a fundamental uh, problem that he has to face. And when you couple that with the fact that he really is lacking in ideology, he does not have a philosophy of America's place in the rest of the world, other than, as Jeff pointed out, the sort of boastful idea. <clears throat> so those, things together, those two things together, I think, put him into a corner. What can he do? He rightly pointed out at CPAC that we've wasted $6 trillion in the Middle East and that the presidents would have been better off just to go to the beach for the past 15 years. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was a great point. But then he went on, and Dr. Paul pointed this out in his column this week. He wanted, went on a couple of minutes later saying, I promise you the greatest military buildup in history, which shows that he, he's either, he either has two speechwriters that hate each other, and they're just playing games, or he's not really paying attention to what he's saying. You can't have both of these at the same time. So it's, it really is, unfortunately, the inertia of the foreign policy establishment and I suspect a president who's pretty unschooled in the finer points of foreign policy and who lacks a lot of curiosity uh, in that area. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a very interesting article that I just read, uh, the three Trump administrations, and they pointed out the sort of the division within the Trump administration. Uh, you have some of those people that are very, very close to, to Donald Trump himself, uh, and then you have some of the others uh, – you know that that are sort of in the middle, but then you have the third administration, which is, uh, you know, people uh, is sort of a combination of George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan administration, neoconservatives, activists. I think he linked uh, in there the article linked in the Secretary of State, uh, and and so it seems like what you're saying is it's a very divided administration. And you wonder how much. Um, you really wonder how much, um, you know, which way this thing is going to go. But it would seem to me that the state is so much more powerful than uh, than the executive. And especially, I mean, unlike Dr. Paul, who you two worked with, uh, Trump doesn't really seem to have an ideology or, or, or a direction to go. So it, it really, you have to wonder. Jeff, I'd like to ask you, getting back to this point of economic nationalism, uh, you know, it's, it seems, I mean, one of the points that Tucker Carlson has made recently with respect to the middle class, you know, he's arguing in favor of uh, of a stricter control of immigrants coming in, uh, and their the the prices, the wages would go up for the work that the immigrants are doing, 
and that would provide middle America, people that don't have work, with something to do. They're not willing to work at these wages, but they would work for higher wages if the, if the market were allowed to, uh, to develop in that way. In other words, keep, keep them out, do what Donald Trump would do or, or what he seems to want to do. Um, and then you would have inflation, things would cost more, but at least the middle class would have some higher wages. What are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I think it's uh, wrong, first and foremost, especially with regard to farm work. Um, most Americans who didn't grow up doing farm work, I think, have very, very little capacity at any wage uh, to do what Mexican immigrant laborers do in the U.S. Southwest on a daily basis, which is backbreaking work in the sun uh, f- for low pay. So, I, you know, I, I understand the sentiment uh, that the challenge for those of us who believe in trade is always to take things a step further. In other words, uh, it's the seen and the unseen that mm-hmm. Bastiat described in his book. So anyone can say, well, if these Mexicans are coming in taking these jobs and we stop the Mexicans from coming in taking these jobs and the jobs will go to Americans. So it's this sort of simple little syllogism. Um, but you have to go a step further and say, well, uh, you know, there's there's a welfare state. Uh, there are jobs that Americans are unwilling to do. Um, there are there's supply and demand for labor, just like there's supply and demand for I- any other any good or service. So, um, you know, the, the economic nationalism is is really a way of looking at the world uh, not as it works, but as one wishes it works. So, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, this fetish that the Trump administration and protectionists have for exports. This idea that exports are always to be applauded and subsidized and promoted, but cheap imports are ever and always a bad thing that are driving uh, wages down in America. It, it, it's very strange. It doesn't fit with the facts of the, of the 20th century, and, and it just doesn't uh, fit with economic theory. It's good to have a trade deficit when what we're trading is rapidly depreciating U.S. dollars for actual stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I I know it's a cliche, but you've probably heard the saying that you have a trade deficit with your local grocer, and that's a good thing. You give him Mm -hmm. money, and they give you food to eat. So, um, you know, it's the same old uh, protectionist arguments that we've keep beating down and keep defeating both conceptually in theory and in terms of history and empiricism and practice, and they just keep cropping up. So there's there's clearly uh, something in human nature that makes us want to uh, take what appears to be the easy solution. Yeah, for sure. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, Daniel, could you what what do you expect from the president this evening in front of Congress? What, what do you expect he'll say? Well, I think he'll say what he's what he's been saying. You know, we're going to do great things. We're going to. We're going to rebuild the military. Uh, we're going to uh, have a massive infrastructure programs. I think he wants to spend a trillion dollars. He wants to spend another. He's going to spend another trillion upgrading the nuclear weapons. Then uh, he's going to give everyone a tax cut, and um, you know, rainbow unicorns are going to fly through the Capitol building. You know, yeah. it's. Uh, I wish all of these things could happen. Well, I don't wish they could happen, but but what is he going to do with the, to the currency to make these things happen? It's just very unrealistic. He's in a trap. He's put himself in a trap uh, by promising everything to everyone. And I think it's, um, you know, I think this stick is going to get old fairly quickly, unfortunately. And I think we're heading down the road to some serious economic day of reckoning. 
Yeah, and indeed, Jeff. With thirty seconds left, we got a twenty trillion dollar budget that has to be voted on very shortly. Uh, a ceiling that has to be lifted beyond that. Uh, how is this going to shake out? <laughs> well, I suspect that they'll pass it. But look, I got a solution for them. Take the about two point five to two point eight trillion of U.S. Treasury debt that the Fed owns right now, upon which it remits interest payments back to the Treasury, and just yeah. cancel it. You got two point five trillion of of new uh, breathing room right there. Just get rid of it. We owe it to ourselves, as they say. Right. Good idea. Uh, what's the chance of it being implemented, though, with the bankers in charge? I doubt it. But thank you very much, both of you, for being with us today. Sorry, we don't have more time. I had loads and loads more questions. Another time, perhaps. Well, so thanks again for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, uh, I'm going to be in uh, Toronto. So I'm going to have some pre-recorded clips from David Stockman and also Jeff Deist. Uh, we'll be interviewing a couple of um, his guests at the uh, Mises Institute, John Tammy, Tamney, who, do, who will discuss Trump's economics, and uh, Ron Stoffel uh, will talk about how to use Austrian economics for profitable investing. It should be really a great show, so I hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. DynaCert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Golden Predator Mining Corp., a well-financed gold exploration company operating in Canada's Yukon. Focused on advancing its three aces project, a high-grade gold project located in the southeast Yukon with gold and quartz outcrops at surface. Ongoing work includes trenching, road work, drilling, and bulk sampling. Golden Predator also holds the past-producing Brewery Creek project located near Dawson City, Yukon. Golden Predator, a company working closely with Yukon First Nations. Golden Predator trades on the Canadian venture market as GPY and in the USOTC market as NTGSF. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on a Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean Metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. Arvista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Arvista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Arvista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol 
symbol ARVSF. For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com.